Hello, and welcome to the Battlecast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song lesson file one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Billy Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 75th episode of the Nauticast titled, On the Road. Did you like that? I didn't sing it that time. On the Road, analysis of A Clash of Kings aria one. Two and three, in which Arya Stark wanders the war-torn riverlands with her new companions, kids who try to rob her, adults who threaten her, and her guardian Yorin who beats her. God, I love friends. Aren't people just the best? Well, you are, Jeff. Thank you for your restraint in not singing. I promise I'll let you do it whenever you like five or ten times. We'll make a list. We'll make a schedule. So as you can tell, folks, we're kind of doing the opposite of what we did with the prologue to A Clash of Kings, where it was so dense and weighty and just long that we slid it into two episodes. This time we are combining three chapters into a single episode, Arya's first three chapters in A Clash of Kings. And that's not a reflection on them being of poor quality. There's a lot of really interesting and valuable stuff to talk about as we're going to get into in this episode, but they are kind of repetitive. So I think if we we thought if we did individual episodes for these three, each of these three chapters, we'd kind of get tired and samey by the time we got to the third one. They'd be kind of shorter episodes than you guys are used to. So we wanted to do both these chapters right and do, do you folks right and do them all at once so we can really tackle the, the themes they all have in common. And they do have a lot of themes in common and a lot of the same kind of storytelling devices which George integrates into the narrative, which is a lot of fun to unpack. But like Emmett said, gets a little repetitive doing these kind of one chapter after the other. That's not to say these aren't bad chapters like Emmett also said. These are actually really good chapters and I will defend them to the death. As always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and the Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart, the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Larian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood, Worldwide Werewood, and our newest member of the small council, sir or my lord or my lady, Jasper B. Thank you for joining our small council. Thank you to our existing counselors. And yeah, like I said, thanks very much, Jasper B., for joining us. It's a lot of it's well, and welcome to the small council. Absolutely. We're so happy to have Jasper on the council. Jasper only just joined, so we haven't heard back yet about what kind of crazy, whimsical, lordly title that, that they're into, but I'm sure it's going to be a great one. And we're always happy to have more members on the council, and we're glad that so many people are as excited to get into a Clash of Kings as we are. Absolutely. So, our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg Fellows, histories, interviews, the Winsbury Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So today, George R. R. Martin had an appearance at London, at uh, Waterstones, I want to say, the uh, bookstore, that's the English bookstore, in which he was interviewed and he talked about a couple things, most of the stuff we've already heard before, how he's a gardener, how the story opened up, kind of the stuff with uh, that kind of the hardcore fans are like rolling their eyes at. But I did see a few people on Twitter, uh, granted, I did see a few people on Twitter being like, this is amazing. I had no idea the story started this way, which... Fair point. Good on you for learning. That's great. That's awesome. That's amazing. 
But there was one small piece of news, maybe big piece of news, who knows? There was a big piece of news, I'm going to go with big, in which George actually talked about the sequencing he's going to be doing for future novels. So what he says that his next priority is The Winds of Winter, which of course is coming out next week. After that is going to be Duncan Egg number four. And after that is going to be A Dream of Spring. After that, Duncan Egg five. And then after that, after that Fire and Blood volume two. So that's been a little bit up in the air because I think George was a little unsure, you know, about a year ago, whether what he was going to do after the winds of winter, but now he seems to have firmed up his plans. Do you have any thoughts about these firming up of plans? I just had the image of the the Marvel slate for phase four and five, but George <laughs> just like pointing to it with a ruler. No, I mean, it's, it's great to get a, a firmer sense of plans of books we will hopefully one day see. I don't mean, I don't mean to sound bitter about it. It's great. No, it's, it's, I'm, and I was very glad to hear he's that the fourth and fifth Duncan egg stories are actually close to completion, that a lot of work have been done on those. So that's, that's, that's wonderful news. Uh, part of me wants a dream of spring to come after winds of winter. I have to admit, I wish, I just, I wish that was the the number one priority. But I am glad Fire and Blood Volume Two is lower down on the list because that is a huge undertaking and awesome as it is. The only really reason I want to read it is to find up stuff about Summerhall, and that's that's not necessarily number one on my priority list. But you know, sunny side of things, I do love Duncan Egg. I am. Happy to learn we might be dead wrong or I might be dead wrong about there being no more Duncan Egg stories on the horizon. That would be great. So positive. What do you think, Jeff? Po- positive. I'm pretty positive about it too. I mean, I'm not like super positive about it because I was hoping for something more like, oh, well, you know, I should have the Winds Winter out within the next like six months. That should be done then. And then I'll immediately move on to finishing Duncan Egg 4 and 5 and then also be working that on That would be nice. But, you yeah. know, having the sequencing is nice, I guess. I mean, I, we, we do have some sort of idea of what books four and five in the Duncan Egg series are going to be about. You have one that's going to be – that's been titled at one point in time was called The She-Wolves of Winterfell, although that is not the current title from what I understand. And then you also have another one called The Village Hero, which is supposed to be taking place in the Riverlands. So we could potentially be having two Duncan Egg stories, one set in Winterfell, one set in the Riverlands. And which one comes first is going to be very much in, in George's ball, in George's court. From what I understand, I think – I think he had mostly written the She-Wolves of Winterfell, but then had been struck by this idea of the village hero. So maybe the village hero comes first, given where the third Duncan Egg novella leaves off. And then that as, as Duncan Egg progress up to the north, they go to the Riverlands first. That would make sense location-wise, but you know, you never know what, what George ends up doing. So I'm, I'm excited. I think it'll be good. I just um, – I, I'd like to hear a little more like positive news about the Winds of Winter. You know, I'd like to hear that that book is like – genuinely on the horizon instead of like jokingly a week or two weeks away you know i think um i I, i'm not typically the person who's banging on george's door like yelling for like a release date or get back to work or stuff like that but but once he starts the conversation you can't help bringing up where you'd like it to go i mean once right not that he is responsible for all our wildest fantasies but once he puts out something resembling a schedule i think it's fair to ask more questions about it so yeah that's legit uh or he could just, you know, he could he could mollify us just for a few more months with another sample chapter. Just keep dropping breadcrumbs, George. Just give sure. us the prologue, and we'll be <laughs> yours for the rest of the year at least. Oh gosh, I'm surprised you didn't ask for Aaron too. Oh uh, well, that that just gives away too much. I mean, you know, the the the, the part of the book where Euron just leaps off the brow of the silence <laughs> and flies into the air, spinning, and lightning flashes around his head and stuff like that. I can wait. I can wait. That's just for me. Our question for this episode comes from Scarlet, the other Red Woman and Small Council Mistress of Whisperers who asks, First off, I absolutely love the podcast, and I can't wait to get to A Clash of Kings, if only because it gets me closer to A Dance with Dragons. Well, that's just a a sentiment after our hearts, absolutely. Thank you so much. (laughs) 
And then she gives this quote. The Lannisters are proud, John observed. You'd think the royal sigil would be sufficient, but no. He makes his mother's house equal in honor to the king's. And that's from Arya's first chapter in A Game of Thrones. And then Scarlet continues. I was going through the early chapters again, specifically Arya 1, and thought it was interesting that John was the first to notice that Joffrey divided his arms, which makes me wonder if it's a subtle foreshadowing of John doing the same once his parentage is revealed. You both have commented that John's initial reaction would be anger, and while I don't imagine he will come to terms with this fact quickly, I do think that he will come to accept it. Knowing how much John wants to be a Stark, I could see him making his mother's house equal in honor to the Targaryens. What do you guys think? Well, thank you, Scarlet, so much for the question and the comment. And yeah, that's a great question. I think it's it's interesting, as many people have noted in that scene, John has that ironic line about bastards can't cross over with princes when in fact Joffrey is the bastard and John is the prince. So maybe we'll see a further connection of that with a, a callback to this moment in John bringing up the Stark sigil and heraldry specifically in regards to Lyanna, which is not something I see talked about as much as John's relationship to Rhaegar and House Targaryen when he finds the news. So what do you think about that, Jeff? Something I think is interesting when you're thinking about when you're thinking about George and George's writing is that you see like the focus in the in the in the show to be very much on the action beats of the story. But George, like he loves things like sigils. Like he just loves the shit out of sigils. Right. He like spends like I think he spends an inordinate amount of time like considering and think dreaming up new sigils for new houses. I think even new houses come into being because he's like, Man, I've got this great idea for a sigil. Where would they go? Oh, he, oh they're gonna be in the Westerlands. Oh, they're gonna be he's gonna be the commander of Taiwan one of Taiwan's like vanguards or something like that, or uh, it's just you know, exaggeration example. I got this idea for a vulture who has a baby in his talons. And I'm going to come up with this house to fit this perfect image. Yeah, there's that one part of the, the Tyrion chapter where Oberyn's coming to King's Landing, where it's just Pod listing the sigils off mm-hmm. of the Dornish houses one by one. I, so I, I think that's like that's absolutely like true. Like George loves sigils. So I can imagine him like doing a lot of work with that potentially in the Dream of Spring or the Winds of Winter, whatever George finds out, uh, fashioning his own specific type of sigil where he's kind of crossing the Targaryen and Stark lines together. I think it'd be really cool. I think, you know, these are the types of details that would typically get lost or left out of something like Game of Thrones, even though it is a visual medium. Like they just didn't quite focus on these on those types of things. I mean, yes, they did redesign the Stark sigil back in, you know, 2010, 2011 from what George had originally done. But you know, George loves sigils. And these guys just didn't focus on it, which is fine, which is totally fine. I mean, that's not a critique of the show. So I, I love the idea of of John quartering his sigil of how showing like houses Targaryen and Stark on the same banner. I think that would be really cool. I would be interested to see if he adds something else on there too, whether it's a sword maybe or something else that you can like some other like the design, right? You mean like like Dundarian, like the lightning flash, like an underneath of their sigil. Is that what he's going to go for? Is there going to be something else there? A fire, if he you know, turns into like a Rolorite follower. A, a werewood tree, potentially as well, if he becomes more of a, a follower of the old gods and after he gets resurrected. Who knows? There's so many things that he could do it. What do you, th- what do you think? Those are all great ideas. Something to do with the Night's Watch, something to do with the Wildlings, although they're not necessarily as into heraldry as the South. I think there's a lot of good possibilities there. And yeah, George likes using sigils not just because he's a, he's a nerd for that kind of thing, although he is, but because it's a, a great way to express the politics of a character, which is what they're used for in real life is expressing, you know, I'm part of this house and part of this house. You get it also with the with the phrase. I think it's I don't know if it's Bran who notices that the the young little and big Walder Frey have quartered their sigils to involve like the the mother's house because that's how you separate yourself in House Frey is who was your mom right because because there's all those little fa- sub factions within House Frey so are you a Blackwood or a Craycall we gotta know so you put it on the sigil and I think George understands that 
there it's a communicative form that it's it's a way of expressing yourself without words politically in a room and i I think that um i think that would be really interesting to see with john because naturally as a bastard and a night's watchman he hasn't had to play with that kind of thing so it'd be interesting to see him do so right and he does make that in he he makes that statement that daria or someone else where bastards get the swords and trueborn sons get the sigils or the arms so to speak so Having right. him actually get the arms that being a trueborn Targaryen, the son of Lyanna and Rhaegar Targaryen, I think would be really interesting. I think it'd be really cool. So I'd be curious to see what George does with that. So thank you, Scarlet, the other Red Woman, and small council mistress of Whispers for the excellent questions. And of course, you did send this question right around the time you became a small council member. I just want to say thank you again for becoming our small council mistress of Whispers. That's just really, really cool. Thank you so much, Scarlet. Thank you very much indeed. And as always, if you guys want to check out where you can ask questions, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF, where you can get early access to episodes, show notes, Q&A. You can get bonus episodes, which I think we're up to almost 18. I think we have 17 bonus episodes at this point right now, which are only available on Patreon. You can also get things like uh, access to our Slack for our two highest tiers. So we have got a number of great patrons now. We just recently crossed our $5,000 a month goal, which has been amazing and awesome. Thanks to all of you guys who are patrons. So if you guys want to check us out, again, that website and address is patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. It's a lot of it's a lot of letters seemingly in my mind right now. That's all good. But here, so enough about Patreon, enough about questions, enough about John's quartering sigils. Here is the synopsis for A Clash of Kings, Aria 1, 2, and 3. Here I am on the road again. Here I am upon the King's Road. Here I go playing Arya Stark again. Here I go turn the page to A Clash of Kings, Arya 1, 2, and 3. I decided not to sing this one, Emmett. I, I just wanted you to appreciate that moment that I didn't sing some Bob Seger here to start this uh, the synopsis. Very poetic and respectful, like a William Shatner spoken word performance. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good analogy. I love that. All right. When Arya was back at Winterfell, they called her, quote, Arya Horseface, and she hated it. Nothing worse. But now that goddamn Lamy Greenhands calls her Lumpy Head. Now, Arya's head, yeah, it did feel lumpy and all. And the reason why is that back in King's Landing, Yorn had put a knife to Arya's scalp, telling her that he was taking men and boys to the wall. Now you hold still, boy. There was only stubble and uneven tufts of hair left when Yorn was done cutting her hair. Arya would need to become Arya, and why is that? Well, because Yorn was taking her to Winterfell. To Winterfell? Yes, to Winterfell. Gates shouldn't be hard, but the road's another matter. You got a long way to go in bad company. I got 30 this time. Men and boys all bound for the wall, and don't be thinking that they're like that bastard brother of yours. Yorin, you see, had the pick of the dungeons from Lord Stark, and the guys he was bringing north were of, well, poor moral quality, maybe? Is that the best way to put it? That's a polite way of putting it. Half willing to turn Arya over to Cersei, the other half willing to turn Arya over to Cersei after raping her. So Arya needed to go piss in the woods away from everyone else, and she should watch her liquid intake. Strangely, getting out of King's Landing had been pretty easy. The last guards waved them through after Yorin called one out by name. No one even looked at, quote, Ari. They were looking for Arya of Winterfell. Arya never looked back. She wished the rush would rise and wash the whole city away. Flea Bottom and the Red Keep and the Great Sept and everything. And everyone too, especially Prince Joffrey and his mother. But she knew that Sansa was in the city, so she stopped wishing for that and started wishing for Winterfell instead. Oh, she loves her sister after all. Isn't that sweet? Remember that thing about Yorin saying about pissing would be the hardest thing for Arya? Well, unfortunately, not the case. Lamy Greenhands and Hot Pie were the most difficult parts about her journey. 
So far. They were coming with Yorin for the promise of food and shoes at the wall, but then there were others too. Three dudes were going north to the wall who had been chained in a cage and were being wheeled north. One had no nose, the other had, a, ha, the other had sharp filed teeth and weeping sores, and the other, ah, uh, well, we have to leave some things for, for the future part of this synopsis for, the, for its reveal. Five wagons left King's Landing with supplies for the wall, towed by plow horses. Yorin had two horses and six donkeys for carrying the boys north. None of the men in the party gave a shit about Arya, but the boys were a different story. Look at that sword Lumpy's, Lumpyhead's got there. Where's a gutter rat like that? Lumpyhead, get him a sword. Arya chews her lips suddenly and stays quiet, not wanting to go to Yorin for help. Hot Pie puts in that maybe Arya is a lordling squire. Lumpy doesn't think it's even a real sword. It's Castleforge steel, you stupid, and you better shut your mouth, Arya snaps. Well, now the boys want to know where Arya got the sword. Did she steal it? Arya shouts angrily that she didn't steal it. Hot Pie gets close and tells Arya he wants the sword. She doesn't even know how to use it. Yes, I do, Arya could have said. I killed a boy. A fat boy like you. I stabbed him in the belly and he died. And I'll kill you too if you don't let me alone. But she won't dare do that now. Arya figures there's other killers in the group and she doesn't really want to draw attention to herself. Lamy brays that Arya looks like she's going to cry, but no. Arya had cried in her sleep the night before when she had dreamed about Ned. But she ain't going to cry anymore. He's going to wet his pants, Hot Pie says. Leave him be. Another voice. A tall boy with black hair, strong arms, a broad chest, and a polished horned helm rides forward. But Lamy ain't afraid. He hype bans Hot Pie, saying that Hot Pie kicked the boy to death. And Hot Pie says, yeah, he totally did that. Kick him in the balls till he died. So give the sword up, Arya. Arya then offers Hot Pie a practice sword, but Hot Pie ain't about that. He tries to reach for the real sword, and Arya smacks the donkey Hot Pie is riding on with her stick sword, sending the animal bucking. Hot Pie is knocked to the ground, and Arya comes vaulting off and whacks Hot Pie in the face, breaking his nose. Yes. She turns on Lobby and asks if he wants some, too. He doesn't. He raises his hand and squeals at her to get away. But then the bull shouts, Behind you! And Arya turns to see Hot Pie grabbing a rock to throw at her. She ducks from the rock and flies at him, hitting his hand cheek and knee. Cheek and knee. Hot Pie falls down, his face covered in blood and dirt. He stumbles after Arya, and then she lunges at him, pushing her wooden sword between his legs. Yorin then mercifully shows up and then pulls Arya off, telling everyone to shut the fuck up and behave, or Uncle Yorin will tie them to the back of wagon with the real criminals. <laughs> Love that threat. It's awesome. Yorin then proceeds to drag Arya away from the rest of the party into the woods. Dragging Arya away seems to be something of a character trait for Yorin, doesn't it? If I had a thimble of sense, I would have left you in King's Landing. You hear me, boy? He then tells Arya to go take her pants off and go wrap her arms around the trunk of a tree. You scream now. You scream loud. Arya stubbornly says that she ain't gonna, but then Yorin takes the stick to her and she screams as he hits her three times. Yorin warns her that the next time she goes after one of her brothers with a stick, she'll get twice what she gave them. But Arya thinks that these people, they're not her brothers. Yorin asks if she's hurt and Arya thinks calm is still water, before saying that it hurts some, and then Yorin has it that the boy is hurting worse. But really, Arya... It's not Hot Pie or Lamy that killed your father, Ned. And beating the dog piss out of those boys isn't going to bring Ned back. But as for Ned dying when he went and where he did, you know, that shit wasn't supposed to go down that way. You see, Yoren was in the plaza because a very random who could possibly know individual came to drop off a boy with him and a purse of coins, stating that Ned was going to take the black. So that's why he was there. Only something went queer. Joffrey, Arya breathed. Someone should kill him. Yorin says that someone will probably kill Joffrey, which true, but not the two of them. Also true. All the same, chew some sour leaf and it will help with the pain that I just inflicted on you, Yorin sort of says. 
The sour leaf did kind of help, but it also tasted like shit. But she still had to walk as her backside was too sore to ride a horse or donkey. Hot pie, though, had to ride in a cart, whimpering whenever the wheels of the sorry, that's cruel. Whimpering whenever the wheels of the wagon hit a rock on the road. Lamy stayed away. That night she lays awake watching the red comet, and though the quote bull had called it the red sword, Arya thinks it looks like ice, her father's great sword, and the red was the blood of Ned Stark, the blood that Ilan Payne spilt on Baylor's sept. When Arya finally fell asleep, she dreams about Winterfell, and she wants to see her mom, Rob, Bran, and Rickon again. But most of all, she wants to see Jon. Maybe she can go to the Wall first before Winterfell and have Jon call her his little sister and tell her how he missed her. She would have liked that more than anything. In the days that follow, Arya travels from break of dawn to dusk through the woods, orchards, fields, towns, villages, market towns. Lots, lots of traveling. They make camp at night with the Great Comet still overhead, but as the party journeys north, they begin to find the King's Road crowded with more and more small folk coming south. On foot, or atop horses and carts, the small folk moved south towards King's Landing, away from the wars to their north. But a lot of these people, they're also armed. Knives, dirks, scythes, and axes. They had clubs, too, and they grabbed the hilts of their weapons as the Night's Watch passes by, but they never struck. But one day, a, quote, mad, which in very big quotation marks, mad woman, begins screaming at them from the side of the road. Fool! They'll kill you, fools! Next day, a merchant offered to purchase Yorin's wagons for a quarter of their value, but Yorin refused. The merchant said that says that they, also in big quotation marks, will take what they want from you without paying you any coin. The same day, Arya sees her first grave dug for a child, and that actually, I guess it's because I'm a, I'm a father now when I read, read this chapter, that made me feel some things when I was reading this chapter. And though the boys wanted to take the crystal put on top of the mound, Bull said, fuck no. Good on Bull. The problem was that most of the successive days, they saw more graves dug along the side of the road. In fact, as they progress farther north, hardly a day passes without them seeing a grave. One night, Arya woke up terrified for no good reason you know, besides all the graves and the prophetic sign of destiny flying in the sky above her. The world was quiet that night, and Arya feels as if, quote, the world were holding its breath. Mm-hmm. George, I see that you watch Return of the King. The next morning, Prade, one of the men going north, was found dead. Arya thinks about how the absence of Prade's cough was why the night seemed quiet the night prior. They dug his grave and dispersed his goods among themselves. One of the boys tossed a handful of acorns on top of Prade's body so that a mighty oak might grow in its place. That night, the party arrives at a village, and Yorin decides that they have enough money to stop by an inn to wash and have a hot meal. But Arya isn't going to dare having people discover she's a girl, even if she smells as bad as Yorin does. Arya heads to the common room for a meal, though. Inside, the men and the boys going north get around on the house from the innkeeper as they feast on pork pies and baked apples. You see, the innkeeper had a brother who had been forced into the Night's Watch after he stole pepper from a certain Sir Malcolm. Arya sips beer and eats spoonfuls of pie, remembering how she sometimes got to have beer with her father and how Sansa made faces at the taste. It made her sad to think of Sansa and her father. The inn itself has lots of people who are coming south. When Yorin states that they're going north, everyone tells him that he'll be coming south soon enough again. Half of the fields to the north are burned out, and most of the small folk left are holed up behind walls. When Yorin makes the case that Tully or Lancer mean nothing to him, and that the Night's Watch is neutral in any wars of the realm, the innkeeper tells Yorin that it's more than just the River Lords or Lannisters at war. There's wild men come down from the Mountains of the Moon, and they don't care about the quote, Night's Watch takes no part. Besides, how Stark is hashtag in it to win it. Ned's son has come to fight too. Arya perks up at that. A blonde patron says that Rob rides to battle on top of a wolf, but Yorin dismisses this. 
And the wolves, yeah, there's a lot of them around the godside these days. The packs are all about killing livestock, and there's one giant wolf, a sheepage from the seventh hell. Arya wonders if that could be Nymeria. She thinks about how she and Jory had chased Nymeria off with rocks and shouts, and, and Arya feels bad that some of the rocks hit the wolf, and that's the only way the wolf is able to get away. She probably wouldn't even know me now, Arya thought. Or if she did, she'd hate me. When one man says that the she-wolf stole a baby from its mother's arms, Arya erupts and says, that ain't true. Wolves don't eat babies, stupid. Yoren orders her to go outside and sees that the horses have been watered. Arya emerges outside in a fury, angry that people are stating such utter, um, falsehoods? Hmm. Boy, a friendly voice cut out. Lovely, lovely boy. The voice belongs to one of the men inside the cage. Arya approaches. The prisoner shows her his empty cup and asks if he could have some more beer. And what does this particular prisoner look like? He was the youngest of the three. Slender, fine-featured, always smiling. His hair was red on one side and white on the other, all matted and filthy from cage and travel. A man asks for a bath and says that Arya could make a friend, to which Arya replies that she already has friends. But then one of the other men in the cage, the one without a nose who's covered in black hair, says that she doesn't have any friends. Meanwhile, the other one, the bald one, with, with filed teeth, hisses at Arya and she flinches back, yelling at him to stop. The handsome younger man apologizes and says he didn't choose his companions in the black cells. He asks her whether she's called Ari and introduces himself. This man has the counter to be Jack and Hagar, once at the free city of Lorath. Would that he were home. This man's ill-bred companions in captivity are named Rorge and Biter. When Jack and asks if Arya is charmed by Biter not having the ability to speak or write, she says, uh, no. Jack and says, a man, a man must weep. Rorge flings himself at the metal bars, yelling at Arya to get him some beer. But Arya tells him to shut up. She draws her wooden sword, resulting in Rorge threatening to sodomize her with the wooden sword, which is just lovely. Beer cuts deeper than swords. Biter jumps at his feet, rushing at Arya, but the chains hold him a foot and a half from her face. She hits him hard with her wooden sword. Biter reels back, and then he gets up, throwing all his weight against the chains. He reaches and reaches and reaches for her, but the chains hold tight. Finally, he subsides. A boy has more courage than sense, the one who had named himself Jack and Hagar observed. Arya edges back from the wagons, and another hand grabs her shoulder. She whirls around and finds herself face to face with the bull. He asks what she's doing, tells her that no one should go near the men in the cages. Arya says she ain't scared, but the bull is scared of the men in the cages. He directs her away from the cage, and she lets him lead her. Hmm. Away from the cage, Arya asks the bull if he wants to fight, and he stares at her. Finally, he says that he'd hurt her. He's strong. But Arya says, nah-uh, she's quick. The bull draws Prade's longsword, which is not a metaphor at all for sex, in a song of ice and fire. They start to square off, but then Arya notices that the bull is looking past her. What's wrong? Gold cloaks. His face closed up tight. Arya's in disbelief, but when she turns, she sees that six gold cloaks are galloping up on them in the black ringmail and golden cloaks. She uses the things that Siri taught her and notices that the men have ridden hard. She grabs the bull and drags it behind a hedge to his surprise. As soon as the gold cloaks rein up, they yell at some of Yoren's boys waiting to take a bath whether they're going to take the black. Maybe the answer, but they'd rather join the gold cloaks than the night's watch. It's rather fucking cold up in the wall. The leader of the gold cloaks dismounts his horse and proffers a warrant stating that they need to take someone back. But then Yoren steps out of the inn. Who is it that wants this boy? From behind the hedges, the bull asks Arya why they're hiding, and Arya says that they're after her. Meanwhile, the officer says that the queen wants the boy, and it's none of Yoren's concern. The bull asks why they'd want Ari, but she tells him to shut it. Yoren takes hold of the warrant and then dismisses it. Pretty, he spit. The thing is, you know, the boy's in the Night's Watch now. What he done back in the city don't mean piss all. 
The Gold Cloaks really don't give a damn about Yorin's refusal. They want the boy. Arya thinks about running, but she doesn't. But she knows she won't get far. She was tired of running anyways. She ran when Marin Trent killed Sirio. She ran when Ellen Payne killed her father. She really should go out there with Neil in hand and kill all of them and never run away ever again. Yorin stands there all stubborn saying that they're not taking anyone and that there's laws about this sort of thing. The lead gold cloak draws a sword. Here's your law. Yorin looked at the blade. That's no law. Just a sword. Happens I got one too. The gold cloak arrogantly states that he has five men with him, but Yorin says, okay, you got five, I got thirty. Bad odds, hombre. Still stupid, still arrogant. The gold cloak flashes his sword, asking who wants them. And then each of the boys draws weapons and approaches, shouting that they're first. Even Dauber, naked from his bath, steps up with his dagger. Hell, even Hot Pie grabs another rock to throw at someone. Arya could not believe what she was seeing. She hated Hot Pie. Why would he risk himself for her? The gold cloak laughs, probably extremely nervously, then tells them to put their weapons away. None of them probably even knows which end of the sword to hold. I do. Arya wouldn't let them die for her like Sirio. She wouldn't. Shoving through the hedge with needle in hand, she slid into a water dancer stance. The gold cloak officer calls Arya a girl and says to put the blade away. But Arya yells that she's not a girl. I'm not a girl, she yelled furious. What was wrong with them? They rode all this way for her and here she was and they were just smiling at her. I'm the one you want. The gold cloak officer points his short sword towards the bull. He's the one we want. But that was a mistake. Yorin unsheathes his sword and holds it to the gold cloak's throat. Neither is the one you'll get, lest you want me to see if your apple's ripe yet. I got me ten, fifteen more brothers in that inn. If I was you, I'd let loose of that gut cutcher, spread my cheeks over that fat little horse, and gallop on back to the city. Now. The gold cloak drops his sword and Yorin says they're keeping it for the wall. All the gold cloaks mount up, stating that they'll be gone for now, but they'll be back. And they'll take Yorin and the bastard boy's head. Better men than you have tried. Yoran slaps the rump on the officer's horse and the gold cloaks head on back south, down the king's road. When they're gone, Yoran angrily tells everyone they'll be back and they need to mount up and move quick, fast, in a hurry. He offers the gold cloak's sword and Hot Pie wants it. And he gets it. But Yoran warns him not to use the sword on Ari. Yoran turns to the bull and tells him that the queen wants him bad. Ari was lost. Why, why should she want him? The bull scouted her. Why should she want you? You're nothing but a little gutter rat. Well, you're nothing but a bastard boy. Or maybe he was only pretending to be a bastard boy. Maybe that was the case. What's your true name? Uh, Gendry, he said like he wasn't quite sure. Yoren distracts him to everyone and says that he's not sure why the queen wants either of them. Regardless, they're going to ride like the dragons on their tail. He gives Arya and Gendry the, the two corsairs. Arya says that the gold cloaks promise to take Yoren's head too, which provokes a grunt and Yoren to say, well, as to that, if he can get it off my shoulders, he's welcome to it. As they move farther north, Arya takes note that the King's Road was little more than two ruts through the weeds. There were less people, though. Fewer people, rather. So the narrowing of the road, not all, not at all foreshadowing things to come, didn't matter all that much. But it did matter that the road went back and forth like a snake, sometimes even disappearing entirely before reappearing across rolling hills, terraced fields, meadows, woodlands, and valleys. It's nice terrain, though, even with a crooked path, but Arya kept looking over her shoulder watching for the gold cloaks to approach. That sense that she was being followed led her to waking up at all times of the night at every single noise. And now Yorin put sentries out to watch for things that might creep up on them at night. But Arya didn't trust the sentries. They were city slickers in the country, and they were lost out here. Besides, Arya could sneak past them using the starlight to guide her path at night. Hell, 
One night, she even climbed up an oak tree when Lamia was on watch and got right over his head, and he saw nothing. Arya reflects on Gendry and how everyone thought he was special now because Cersei wanted him dead, but Gendry ain't having any of that. I never did nothing to no queen. I did my work is all. Bellows and tongs and fetch and carry. I was supposed to be an armorer one day. Master Mott says I got to join the Night's Watch. That's all I know. Then he'd go jerk off, or <clears throat> polish his helm while Arya, um, watched. <laughs> Lamy thinks that Gendry is a bastard, probably Ned Stark's bastard, but Arya corrects him angrily. Ned only had Jon as a bastard. More than ever, Arya wants to dash off on top of a horse, but she realizes that no one would be able to protect her if she went on her own. There'd be no one to watch her back. It was safer to stay with Yorin and the others. One morning, Yorin announces that they're close to the god's eye and that they won't be safe until they cross the trident to the west. He plans to take them up the western shore as he imagines that the gold cloaks will probably think they're heading up the king's road. Heading west, though, the terrain changes. The farmlands have become forests with smaller villages and holdfasts farther apart. And food was harder to find. Sure, Yorn had packed lots of food for the trip, but they'd eaten through it all by now. So he sent two men, Koss and Kurtz, which is an interesting kind of alliterative names, to hunt while the two boys picked berries. Arya once found a rabbit, killed it, and brought it back. She got to eat the leg of rabbit that night, which only prompted Rorge to laugh and call her Lumpy Face, Lumpy Head, Rabbit Killer. Lovely. Once, the party had been surrounded by field hands who demanded payment for ears of horn that they picked, and Yorin angrily paid them. Time was the man in the black was feasted from Dorne to Winterfell, and even high lords called it an honor to shelter him under their roofs. Now cravens like you want hard coin for a bite of wormy apple. But the men had only called them stinking old black birds and told them to get lost. And though they roasted the corn in their husks that night, and that corn tasted great according to Arya, Yorin was angry. Too angry to eat. The following day, word came from their forward scouts of a camp ahead of 20 to 30 dudes. The banner was a spotted tree cat. Yorin doesn't know which side they're a part of, doesn't recognize the banner seemingly, but he decides to take the party a long way, the long way around them, costing them two days in the journey. More and more, Arya notices guards and armed men in the fields protecting their crops. Others patrolled on horses. Another time, Arya even sees a man perched up in a tree with a bow. Yorin curses him when he drew, when he drew his bow and watched them go past. And if you thought things were bad, they're about to get super fucking worse. A day later, Dauber spied a red glow against the evening sky. Either this road went and turned again, or that sun's setting in the north. Yorin climbs a tree to check it out and says, uh, no, that's a fire. But they'll be okay so long as the wind is carrying it away from them, right? <laughs> right? They watch the fire all the same and Arya begins to smell smoke. That night, the fire grows brighter and brighter. And even though the fire is gone the next day, no one sleeps well. Yorin and his boys arrive at the village the next day where the fire had been and find a desolation of burned fields and blackened houses. Dead livestock are all around, and human bodies are impaled on sharpened stakes with, quote, hands drawn up tight in front of their faces as if to fight off the flames that had consumed them. Wow. Yorin orders a halt and heads in to scout it out while leaving Arya and Gendry to guard the wagons. When they emerge, they bring the little girl they bring a little girl and a woman. The girl was maybe two years old at best, and the woman had lost most of her arm, always whispering, Please? Please? Yorin put the woman in the wagon, and the atmosphere is growing tense and scary. Arya and Hotpie confess how scared they are to each other, and Hotpie even admits that he never kicked any boy to death. He, he just sold Hot Pies. My, my name is Hotpie. Come on, guys. Arya rides far ahead of the wagon to avoid hearing the woman's, Please? Please? Or the little girl's cries. She remembers a story about a man imprisoned by giants who had fled from the castle only to be taken by the others. 
don't know why you're thinking about that, Arya, but that's also creepy. The woman dies that night, but even after they bury her, Arya thinks that she can still hear, please, please, on the wind. You are in order snow fire to be built, which, yeah, good call, but that means their meals are going to be dry beans, wild radishes, and a funny tasting water, which Lamy helpfully insists tastes funny because of the bodies, the dead bodies upstream. Arya drinks too much of the water anyways to fill her stomach with something. In the middle of the night, Arya wakes up, needing to piss real, real bad. We've all been there before. She grabs Needle and moves out into the dark. She passes by Hot Pie on sentry duty, who warns her that there are wolves about. She pretends to head back to go to sleep, but instead she waits for Hot Pie to move on, and then she rolls out the other way. Out in the trees, she lowers the breeches and begins pissing when she hears a noise. She thinks it's Hot Pie at first, but then she sees eyes shining in the wood, bright with reflected moonlight. She grabs her needle, but then more eyes appear. A dozen pairs of eyes. A whole pack. One wolf emerges from the tree line, and Arya thinks it's curtains for her. But then, the wolf turns and runs back into the woods, and the rest of the eyes disappear. Arya cleans herself up and then moves back to the camp to find Yorin. There, she tells him about the wolves and recounts the story of Nymeria, and what would have happened if she had brought the direwolf back to Castle Garrett, back to Castle Derry back into Game of Thrones. But if she did bring the direwolf back, well... Maybe then her dad would have been killed. But Yorin has it that all the boys in this road are orphans. The only wolves we gotta fear are the ones who wear man's skin, like the ones who done for that village. Arya wishes she was home, if she was really trying to be brave, but she was scared. Yorin, still in deep reflection mode, talks about how he's only lost three men going up to the wall in the past 30 years. And now, now it feels more dangerous. Yorin sends Arya to bed and she hears the wolves howling, but that's not all she hears. Bainter. No more than a whisper on the wind. That might have been screams. And that is a Clash of Kings aria one, two, and three. George is doing a lot of good work here in, sitting, in doing the setup and groundwork for Arya's Clash arc. But by the time we're at Arya's third chapter, you know, Danny, Theon, and Davos have yet to get a single chapter in the book. So what does that mean for Arya's story going forward? And what is George communicating, especially given what he did with Arya in the Game of Thrones? It's a great question. I mean, Arya had the fewest chapters of any POV in book one, and while her characterization certainly came through strongly, her role in the big picture didn't as much. After the sudden traumatic break with which her story in A Game of Thrones ends, her arc is wide open. Where do you go from there? I think the clue is in her nickname, not Horseface, the other one, Underfoot. So much of A Clash of Kings focuses on the royal courts. Dragonstone, Winterfell, Riverrun, King's Landing itself. Intricate threats, feints and counterfeints, larger-than-life figures moving pieces around on the board. And Arya's chapters are where we see how it feels to be one of the pieces. Or not even one of the pieces. When we had Stephen Atwell on for Edward Eleven in the Game of Thrones, he said for a lot of the peasants, they're just the squares on the board. They can't even move. Arya's story in both A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords is about the fallout from The Clashing Kings, as it reverberates down to devastate the poor and the powerless. While Tyrion seizes control of King's Landing, Arya trudges north through the city's shadow. While Catelyn rides from the Riverlands to the Reach in the Stormlands and back under heavy escort, her safety never really in question, Arya is set upon by soldiers flying the Crown's banner who kill her smallful companions for no reason other than that they can. And while Stannis and Renly argue about whose crown is bigger... <laughs> Arya watches the people of the realm they both claim to rule, raped and tortured and murdered on the orders of Gregor Clegane, an anointed knight. At every turn, her chapters are working to strip down the pretensions of those set among the lords and ladies. And there's a real palpable anger in that contrast. I think this is where George most directly makes the case that the game, so to speak, is rigged. I was reading Clash of Kings, Catelyn 2, and like the journey down the Riverlands is like, like that. 
like super fast. Like she can stand there, no worries. Yeah, there's it's a little bit dangerous, but she's got like a hundred people in her party. No one really fucks around with her because you know she's she's a noble. And the interesting thing though about the uh, the case though for uh, the case that George is making about the game being rigged is that it likely was started back in when he was writing a Game of Thrones. You know, because I have to talk about the meta side here because that's that's what I do. If you guys recall from some of our prior episodes, Clash was never intended to be a book until George overwrote a Game of Thrones by some three hundred to four hundred manuscript pages. And one of the reasons why we chose to combine these three chapters is that they feel a little bit like leftover material from a Game of Thrones that George kind of cut to clash. I think these three chapters were once maybe one chapter back in a Game of Thrones. But then when George decided on making a quote four book trilogy before a six book trilogy before a seven book trilogy before he ends up splitting up into eight books somewhere down the road, he ended up letting out the narrative expand a bit or creep depending on your point of view. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. That being said, I think the expansion of Arya's single chapter into three chapters is a net positive to the story. Yes, it is a little repetitive, like we were saying at the get-go, but I think it is a positive. Not to reference the now-dead pitch letter too much now that we're like years beyond that, right? We're like five years past the pitch letter when George publishes The Clash of Kings. But the story that George originally wanted to tell reads kind of standard. Is that fair? Kings fight, people die, Danny invades, war against the others. All, all well and good, but the expansion, though is really seen in these three Arya chapters, and it's capturing something that doesn't often get captured in fantasy storytelling. What war is like for non-combatants? Like the camera staying with Bran as Rob departs Winterfell back in Bran's sixth chapter in A Game of Thrones, the camera lingering with Arya as she enters the war zone, the growing sense of danger and doom just to the north, shows the readers the real impact of a war that the noble classes claim is about crowns, lands, gold, or justice. And yet, and yet... It crushes the innocent underfoot. Hey, wait, you had referenced this before. Arya underfoot? We just figured it out. That's what the nickname means. <laughs> but absolutely, there's a contrast between this and uh, one of the other travelogue narratives in the series, like Quentin in A Dance with Dragons or Brienne in A Feast for Crows, where they have they set out with a goal in mind, and at least at the beginning, they have a certain amount of uh, pride and success and hope that they're going to pull it off. And with Arya, that's just never the case. Immediately, she begins her journey into the Riverlands. It's the sense that they're just entering the blast zone of some, like, a horrible outbreak. And the the ground zero of it is at Harrenhal, as we'll get into in later Arya chapters. And her situation has only gotten worse. Like, Arya was facing danger and deprivation inside the city walls, as we covered in A Game of Thrones Arya V. But as she thinks to herself, it might have been safe in Flea Bottom compared to the Riverlands at war. She has that, that little anecdote. She remembered a story Old Nan had told once about a man imprisoned in a dark castle by evil giants. He was very brave and smart, and he tricked the giants and escaped. But no sooner was he outside the castle than the others took him and drank his hot red blood. Now she knew how he must have felt. Because that's the situation she's in. She's out of the frying pan and into the fire. She's out of King's Landing, but she's into the Riverlands at war, and the, the threat is just... All around her in these chapters. And the threat comes in part from forces, quote, foraging for supplies for both sides. The uh, the innkeep has that line, one bunch rides off at dawn and another one shows up by dusk, which perfectly captures how just constant and exhausting the threat is. However, the number one threat to the civilian population that Arya has now joined is this. Unleash Sir Gregor and send him before us with his reavers. Send forth Vargo Hote and his free riders as well, and Sir Amory Lorch. Each is to have 300 horse. Tell them I want to see the Riverlands afire from the God's Eye to the Red Fork. These aren't people just going around stealing what they want, which is terrible enough, but at least there's a chance to 
you know, hide and recover and move on with your life. But these three groups, Gregor and Vargo Hote and Amory Lorch, are specifically sent to destroy. It's not collateral damage. It's the whole point of them being there. And these aren't small forces. 300 armed cavalry each, when you're going up against peasants, that means you can do whatever they want, and they are doing whatever they want. And it's just... It was such a devastatingly casual aside from Tywin when he said that just one order given in a chapter full of orders he was given. He's, he's, he seems to barely be thinking about it as he says it. It's just the obvious move to him, but it trickles down with such devastating impact on the people around Arya. It's like it's like Tywin and Tyrion and Stannis and Renly and Catelyn, they're all like sitting around the top of a pyramid and they're all lighting candles. And they're passing the candles back and forth and saying, no, my candle's bigger. And they're trying to set each other on fire when they turn around. And But it's just candles. And by the time you trace those sparks down to the base of the pyramid where Arya's at, they become these gigantic fires. Like that's kind of the structure of, of Clash of Kings in my mind. It's just what, what starts off so casually at the top just becomes life-ending when you get to the bottom. And as the Blackfish says, Tywin is using terror here with the hopes of drawing Rob out from River Run. Now, if Tywin were to be, you know, properly arraigned for war crimes, he would no doubt argue that this is his best way to secure Lannister power, and Lannister power is the vessel he has for doing any good for Westeros. Arya's chapters, however, are clearly George's evidence for the prosecution. The small folk lack Tywin's investment in House Lannister, as well as, of course, Arya's investment in House's Stark and Tully, which is something we'll be talking about as we go. From the peasant perspective, both these forces are just kind of coming down on them in a nightmarish fashion, and sure, they might be able to understand that Rob is a, is a nicer guy than Tywin, but it doesn't mean his soldiers treat them any better. And Arya can't really deal with that. That's why she can't deal with the idea that wolves are eating babies. And that's why it's such a fraught showdown when the wolves approach her in the woods. Not just because they're so dangerous, not just because it might be Nymeria, Arya's own wolf, but because the wolves stand in for House Stark in her mind. And the idea that her family, the home she's trying desperately to get back to, is involved in the horrors she sees around her, that's a really difficult idea for her to get her head around. That the nobles' ends are removed or even abstract for a majority of the population. All they see are the means, which are so nightmarish to as to defy justification. Riding out in front of the wagons on her horse, Arya saw burnt bodies impaled on sharpened stakes atop the walls, their hands drawn up tight in front of their faces as if to fight off the flames that had consumed them. It's just awful, and, and Tywin in particular just doesn't consider the peasants' perspective to be important. Not even like in a cold, detached way where he's like, I'm going to do this to them and then they'll react and I'll manipulate that. He just doesn't even think about it because he doesn't think of them as people, which is why he doesn't anticipate his methods radicalizing them to the extent that they do. I think uh, long before Arya meets the Brotherhood, George is showing us why they exist. Do you think that's a, that's a fair statement? Yeah, I think it's a, that's a completely fair statement. You know... There's a group of people who are missing from the refugees. If did you notice that, like any any absences there, any types of groups of people? You got merchants, you got small folk, you got tons and tons of small folk. It, it's the fucking nobles, man. You know, vast groups of people are fleeing their homes in desperation, and no one is defending them. No one is guarding their way to get them safe and secure. The chivalry that Renly is going to crow about later in a Clash of Kings is nowhere in evidence here. Instead, it's the peasants who are arming themselves. Many of the travelers were armed. Arya saw daggers and dirks, skies and axes, and here and there a sword. Some had made clubs from tree limbs or carved knobby, or carved knobby staves. They fingered the weapons and gave lingering looks at the wagons as they rolled by. Yet in the end, they let the column pass. I think we're seeing the foundation for what something George is going to be exploring later in A Clash of Kings, and especially in Storm and A Feast for Crows, which is the foundation for the Brotherhood, with ban for the Brotherhood Without Banners and the later Sparrows movement led by the High Sparrow. The ruling class is failing at its most basic human function, which is protecting people. 
they're even failing at the basic libertarian perspective of the night watchman state, right? They're not even like doing that. They're not doing their basic side there. Now, when we get to Catelyn's perspective in her first chapter, we are going to see Catelyn saying like, well, we can't keep – if we disperse our men, this is exactly what Tywin wants us to do. So, we won't have an army ready to confront Tywin or any invasion coming from the west. Of course, she has a logic, but it's easy for her to say that when, as you pointed out, she can go from River Run to the Reach when it feels like a blink of an eye. And when she goes back to River Run, she says her scouts bring her tales that make her sick, but that's not the same thing as dealing with the devastation herself. That, lo- However convincing that logic might be to her, it just breaks down at the human level. You see that again later in the book when Edmure admits all those those peasants into River Run who are afraid of the war and says, it's my people, they were afraid, it's my duty to take care of them. And Catelyn is thinking more kind of hard-headedly of the logistics of the war. And you, you have these conflict between these ideals, the, the luxury of being able to debate their principles. Arya is stuck on the ground dealing with the, the immediate fact. And I just – I love how George paces this. I love how George paces Arya's entry into the war zone that will change her life. He doesn't plunge us into the nightmare immediately like with Sam's chapters and A Storm of Swords where right from the opening he's just fleeing this apocalypse. But nor does he pretend everything is like sunshiny at first, like he does with Sansa's chapters in the first book. And I could easily imagine either of those. Like, I could imagine George opening Arya's clash storyline, like, right after the battle by the God's Eye. And then filling us back in, starting with, like, the nightmare of being left alone without Yorin. And just, you know, hitting us with that, that sense of isolation, like with Sam. Or I could see him having kind of a more, like, bucolic, even idyllic tone to these chapters. Like, they're rumbling along, and the fields are full of wheat, and Arya's getting along with... And she starts to heal, and then George drops the hammer. I could see either of those happening, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get, we get like, the old saying about, you, you know, if you want to boil a frog, you put him in a pot of water and slowly turn the temperature up, and he won't even realize he's being boiled. And that's what's happening with, with Arya in this storyline, this, this trepidation and growing fear... The sense of things getting steadily worse with every mile they go. It, she brought up, Arya brought up the others as a, as a point of comparison, the feeling like they're being like hunted by the others. And similarly, it reminds me of uh, that moment in The Long Night, Season 8, Episode 3 of Game of Thrones, in which the Dothraki's flaming swords, as they ride into battle, give us just a glimpse of what they're up against. Just, just the edge of something impossibly huge and horrible. And that's the tone in these first few Arya chapters in A Clash of Kings, is just probing the border of this sea of corpses ahead of us. And you see, they see victims of it. They see perpetrators. They see some people trying to escape the red wave, others trying to profit from it, like that merchant who tries to rip off Yorin. It's, it's, it's the full spectrum of humanity's reaction to a crisis. And the one thing they have in common is the direction in which they're running. And our heroes, of course, are going the opposite way. And that's, yeah, that's the horror atmosphere of these chapters, is the sense that everyone knows something that we don't. And they're never quite clear on what it is, but it's, you know, it's this danger. There's no going north. Half the fields are burnt, and what folks are left are walled up inside their holdfasts. One bunch rides off at dawn, and another one shows up by dusk. That's the more kind of concrete warning, but, like, the, the, the atmosphere is the real thing. And you get they have that, that woman screaming from the side of the road, Fools! They'll kill you all! Fools! Like, that's the mood. First they see graves... And then they start digging them on their own. Every step of the way gets worse. The comet stares down. The campfires stare up. More and more of them as the people are abandoning their homes. And the people who have clung to their land are more suspicious and less generous than ever. So you get this sense, this great sense in these chapters of Westeros like shaking itself to pieces. Long before you see the atrocities firsthand. It's that gradual pace. They see fire on the horizon. Then they search the burnt remains of the village and find the survivors. And all we can do is just imagine what happened to them. Please, 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 please what? We'll never know. Promise me, Ned. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. I mean, that's it's, it's such an 
a really it really sets the mood and foundation for what's happening in Arya's story. And I think let me let me digress a little bit here and talk about Arya's travel chapters because these are these are travel chapters, right? We don't have a lot of like major action beats going on in them themselves, but that doesn't mean they're bad chapters. In fact, I'm going to defend these chapters and other chapters as well, those so-called travelogue chapters. You know, as George begins explaining the narrative out from game, we start to get a lot more of these you know, travelogue chapters, and this has led to some crit- critiques. They started here in Clash with Arya, but especially in Brienne's Feast and Tyrion's Dance chapters, fans kind of look askance at how much time George integrates into, quote, people walking, writing similar chapters into the narrative. For me, though, I think that George imbues a lot of pivotal character beats in these chapters, and George is communicating the themes of the story really well, and it really helps to set things up for those major action beats coming down, which kind of rounds out the story a little bit better than the simple major conflict between noble houses, followed by the zombie apocalypse later on. You know, could George have trimmed these Arya chapters down to one or even two chapters? Sure. Is it better story if he did? I mean, it's impossible to say, really, but I, I think it's better that we linger on Arya's journey before she encounters Amory Lorch and his team of war criminals. You know, I, I to to get a little bit more into it, you know, we get a flight into the we get a window into the play of the small folk on the road, which is something that you know you've been talking about here, which is excellent. We also explore Arya's mental state after witnessing her father's murder. I think it's important to linger on that a bit. You know, George said in 2017 in a Time Magazine interview, "You want the reader to care about your characters. If they don't, then there's no emotional involvement." Well, I think we care about Arya and Arya's friends, especially too, as they're going north. Given the buildup that George is integrating here, you know, George's slow burn gives readers the chance to care about characters before the story is hitting the battle by the God's Eye. Well said, sir. And I think you made an important point about how the battle at the God's Eye feels like the natural progression from these earlier chapters, and it feels like the, the buildup of suspense and then the payoff for it. That. Arya and her companions are kind of on the trail of and just vaguely surrounded by Amory Lorch and Gregor Clegane and Vargo Hote. And you, you feel them just over the horizon as you see all their war crimes and see all the people fleeing them. And then, boom, there they are in Arya 4. And so it doesn't come as a – I mean, it comes as kind of a surprise, but it's not a mystery. They don't come out of nowhere. You know who these people are and what they've been doing just from these first few chapters. And the other important point there, of course, is, yeah, the characters. Arya's with a new cast of characters. Now we have to take a little time to establish them. She was alone in Flea Bottom, but no longer. George has decided that she has to have a fellowship now. And and he kicks off her Clash of Kings storyline, opening that first chapter with Hot Pie and Lamy Greenhands, Orphan Boys, as her immediate source of misery. And I, th- I think it's important to note that the, it's not just that they're uh, taunting her and threatening her and just making her miserable in a bully kind of way. It's specifically that they are boasting about violence that they obviously didn't commit. Like no one, even before Hot Pie admits that he did not in fact kick apart that boy at the balls, every reader knows that, that Hot Pie is making this up. And that that is like just a cheese grater to Arya's open wounds here because she just killed that stable boy in King's Landing. She just semi-bore witness to the deaths of Sirio and her father. She's seen the stuff that they're making up. So to, to hear them boast about it like it's just adding to their repertoire and resumes is just horrible for her. And similarly, Needle, when they reach for it, is her berserk button because it's connected to home and family and above all Jon Snow, the person that she says she wants to see more than anything. It's the only tangible connection to that quest. And yeah, the irony is that Lamy and Hoppy, their jaws would drop if they heard the stuff Arya's been through. And that stuff hasn't empowered her. It's traumatized her. And her, her relationship to them, I feel like it's at a subconscious level, Arya envies them and envies their naivete. It reminds me of what Sansa thinks about Marjorie's cousins in the Storm of Swords. They are children. They are silly little girls, even Eleanor. 
They've never seen a battle. They've never seen a man die. They know nothing. Hmm, where have I heard those words before? <laughs> Their dreams were full of songs and stories, the way hers had been before Joffrey cut her father's head off. Sansa pitied them. Sansa envied them. So if the first book, as I said, Ad Nauseam, was about falling from grace, here we have a POV looking back through the looking glass and seeing what it was once like to be innocent. And I say innocent. And to be sure, Hot Pie turns out to have a heart of gold. Lamy is a little shit until he dies. And that's perfectly appropriate. You know, I think George generally avoids the mistake of pretending that the small folk's suffering transforms them into saints. Like, I know some creators would have that as their instinct, but I think that's just a nicer version of the dehumanization. Like, some of the masses are generally decent people, and some of them are not. But the point is that even the latter shouldn't be getting war-crimed all across the Riverlands. Like, Lamy is a bully and a coward, but he's still a helpless child, and his little sins are just washed away immediately by what Wrath the Sweetling does to him. And I, I, th I, th I think you think it's that George just strikes a good balance there where he's, he's trying to show that, hey, the small folk are people too, and some of them are bad like Chet, and some of them are good like Hoppy, like anybody else. But the point is, is that all of these groups are being swept up in the war. Do you think that's what George is going for? I love that point. And, you know, it, it, drew, it drew me to think about John when he first entered Castle Black, where he is the guy who has been, you know, castle trained. He's had a master of arms. So he's fighting against these boys and he's beating the piss out of them, which, you know, becomes this point where Donald Moy makes it where Donald Moy, where Donald Noy makes it explicit in the narrative, like you're being a bully. And Arya in the her first chapter is kind of being a bully too. Yes, like you said, Lamy is a piece of shit, but she beats the living piss out of out of freaking Hot Pie, right? I mean, the Hot Pie didn't stand a chance against her because she's had training the same way that John had training there. And it's only through that shared suffering that they have in the Riverlands that Arya grow, grows close, especially to people like Hot Pie and someone that we're going to meet here as well in this in the first couple chapters, which is Gendry. Meet again, because we haven't seen him since Eddard 6, I want to say. Yeah, right. Those mid-Eddard chapters when he, he encountered Gendry and Tobamot's, Tobamot's Forge. And yeah, interesting uh, John comparison for sure, which I guess makes Gendry the Sam, but a Sam who's like much more in, in, in control of himself physically. Uh, so yeah, Gendry is immediately Arya's buddy. He's sticking up for her before they're even introduced, telling Hot Pie and Lamy to leave her alone. And, and of course they get along. They're Ned Stark's daughter and Robert Baratheon's son. You think about that Robert line from the crypt. If Lyanna had lived, we should have been brothers, bound by blood as well as affection. Well, it is not too late. I have a son. You have a daughter. And of course, he's talking about uh, Joffrey and Sansa there. But I think there's a great irony in that, of course, Joffrey's not actually Robert's son. And this uh, proposed marriage between Joffrey and Sansa never happens. And in fact, of course, he turns on her horribly. Whereas you have Gendry and Arya, who neither of them know that Gendry is Robert's son, but they meet organically and they develop this relationship. And I think that that's a great deliberate contrast. But what I like about Gendry is that he's not just Arya's sidekick. He's not just Arya's love interest. He has an arc in his own right that I think is really powerful. He goes from the king's bastard to the king's man as part of the Brotherhood who call themselves Robert's men without ever actually knowing the truth about himself. And it's all wrapped up in his, his growing class consciousness that you see when you get to Storm of Swords, when he says, hey, you know what? I don't want to go work for Rob Stark at River Run. I don't want to go work at Winterfell. I want to work for the Brotherhood. I want to work for the people who are sticking up for people who take the loss seriously as, as no one else I've ever seen does. And it, obviously, we're not there yet in Gendry's story, but you, you see what he's reacting against later is, is established here. This is where he kind of develops this, this hatred of the nobles and how they casually they treat peasants' lives that he later... Uh, reinterprets as his support for the Brotherhood. So here it's just his anger that his life was snatched away, that he was going to be a great smith and then that, that was just taken away from him for no reason, hence his obsession with that helm. And he has this just aggressive disinterest in why the gold cloaks might be after him. He just doesn't care. He just wants them to leave him alone. Like Jorah Mormont says, all the small folk just want the lords to leave them alone. And Arya, of course, can't do that. 
so uh, there's this, this this great conflict where she has to she has to play a peasant and she also has to play a boy and that that plays right back into her feelings of unworthiness as a young noblewoman especially relative to Sansa that we talked about in book 1 there's this heartbreaking stuff later on where she wonders if Catelyn and Rob will even want her back, given her failure to look the part. She's like, oh, my nails are dirty and my hair is all messed up. Are they even going to want me? I don't look like a proper lady. And I get the sense that's in part because she's had to play a boy for so long at that point. She's like lost any real connection or any connection she had before to her femininity. And it speaks to that larger fall from innocence, right? That Arya can no longer be who she is in any sense. She can't go by her name. She can't go by her gender. But like Sansa, she has to constantly play a role. And of course, it also speaks to the dangers of life on the road that Arya faces danger from her companions, not only because of her name, but her gender. There's that that terrible choice that Yorn sets up between like half this group will turn you over to Cersei and half of them will do the same thing, but they'll rape you first. And that just establishes that there's no no good options for Arya out here, that she's surrounded just by different kinds of enemies, whether it's class enemies or gender enemies, so to speak. <laughs> there's There's no good options for her. No, there really aren't. And, you know, we, we, we do get to sympathize with a lot of the people in this group, but there are people who are just utterly unsympathetic. And those people are Rorge and Biter and Jack and Hagar. Is he sympathetic? It's kind of hard to say. He's definitely more ambiguous. But yeah, you have Rorge, Biter, and Jack and Hagar immediately set up as separate from the rest. They're violent. They're untrustworthy. They Im- intimidate even Yorin, who's generally like a fearless dude. So that lets you know they're, they're into some serious shit. And Rurge and Biter really are exceptions to George's musings about, you know, gray characters and everyone has to be complex and how bad ugly equals evil is as a trope. Like, Rurge and Biter are exactly what they appear to be. Rurge is a noseless rapist and Biter is a monstrous cannibal. They are what you see is what you get. And Arya's storyline on The Clash of Kings is generally one of the more grounded ones in the book. Again, it's at the small folk level and they're just kind of moving along step by step, day by day. But as she notes, Rurge and Biter come off less like people than demons summoned up from hell. She wonders if, if Jockin like created them. And even more so, Jockin himself looks and talks like he stepped right out of a fairy tale into Arya's more grounded Clash of Kings arc. You know, I, I talked while we were covering the prologue about a Clash of Kings being like this rainbow infusion into the series color palette. And for the most part, Arya's storyline is the exception to that. It's a lot of browns and grays. And browns again. And that's not just to reflect her mood. It reflects that peasants can't afford dyes or rich fabrics. They're not wearing mud brown because they lack Renly's aesthetic flair. That's all they can afford. So, of course, everything in our Clash of Kings chapters is the color of wilted wheat stalks. The one exception, the one pop of color, is Jock and Hagar with his red-white hair. Because he's the, he's the Melisandre figure in this storyline, right? He's the Jojen. He's the Quaith. He's the Herald of the of wonder and terror. And so he's deliberately out of place in this underfoot environment. You've got everyone, like Arya's traumatized and Gendry's angry at everything. And Yorin has this permanent scowl. Everyone's miserable and paranoid and, like, starving. And then there's Jockin, like, leaning back in the cage with his arms behind his head going, Ah, what a lovely day. How are you, Arya? <laughs> and immediately your head tilts like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> One of these things does not belong. <laughs> Jack is such a fascinating character for, for me, not just because of the potential that he has for the Winds of Winter, although that's certainly part of it. But I think like he's he is very out of place here. Like he's kind of the guy, like you said, just like kind of kicking back and observing stuff and being like, This is this is great. He's he's <laughs> he's that meme. He's the guy drinking he's the dog drinking the cup of coffee as everything burns around, saying, This is fine. 
this is fine. And and I think it's interesting, right? Because, you know, as Arya is going to explore, especially in her Feast for Crows chapters with the House of Black and White and with the Faceless Men, they do have a very different perception of death. And I think that's what we're getting in Jack and Agar's those first inklings there, that the his ideology concerning death is different. He's not scared of it. In fact, as we'll, as Arya will find out in A Feast for Crows, the Faceless Men consider death to be a gift. So Jack and watching the fires burning around him, watching people buried, watching children being buried in the ground, watching the horrors of war around him. I have to wonder, I have to imagine he's looking there wondering, well, they got the gift. That's so good for them. That's awesome. You guys, go, go you guys getting killed. He has this very elevated perspective, which is kind of a comfort to Arya and that it gives her a way to process and think about death and gives her some sense of structure. But also he he just draws her deeper and deeper into that world of, of getting obsessed with death and solving problems with death. And obviously we saw kind of the, the culmination of that relationship in, in season eight of Game of Thrones, which I liked in terms of Arya's character, if not necessarily overall in terms of the other's plot. But in terms of Jockin here in the context of Clash of Kings, yeah, the, like Melisandre parallels definitely stood out to me this time. Like Jockin comes over from Essos He's performing mysterious magic. He both directly kills people himself and tempts Arya to, which lines up with how Melisandre deals with Stannis. And of course, they have that shiny red hair in common, that red hair that everyone looks at. Like you got everyone calling Melisandre beautiful, as Crescent notes. And then you have like uh, servant women giggling over Jockin's hair in Harrenhal. They're both kind of seductive figures, Melisandre more explicitly, but they both have that sense of they're like going to crook their finger at you and go, yes, yes, come closer. And then the hero does. And we'll have much more to say about that when Arya saves all three of their lives at the God's Eye. And then Jockin demands three deaths in return at Harrenhal. For now, we see him just kind of observing Arya. And says he says Ari is lovely, which, you know, hint, hint. And is that fascinating line that uh, Arya has, has more courage than sense, which is interesting. Because, like, is that him thinking she would be good for a faceless man? But it seems like they... Don't necessarily want that combination. Who knows? But already he's paying attention to Arya. What I also think is important to note, though, what makes Jockin very different from Melisandre or Jojen or Quaithe is that he does not appear to have come to Westeros to seek out Arya Stark. Like, this just Hmm. happened. They were swept together by the circumstances of the war. Their connection gets made steadily deeper by what they grow through. And then he just leaves her behind. Like, Quaithe leaves Danny behind, too, at the, at the end of this book. They never uh, directly, physically interact again, but Quaithe keeps showing up in Danny's mind because she's invested in Danny and has some part to play in her story, presumably. One hopes. <laughs> Jockin, I really get the sense he has not thought about Arya since he leaves her behind at the Clash of Kings because he's got his job to do. And that's, that's so fitting because Arya, unlike Bran or Danny or Stannis, isn't the messiah you seek out because the prophecies say so. She's the one you trip over. And that, in turn, fits Arya's role among the small folk. Of course, the POV among those crushed underfoot, ignored by those above, would be the one to just stumble across her magical mentor figure rather than be part of some grand destiny. You know, Jockin's not the most personable of guys, but I've always liked that that he didn't follow a specific image or order to find Arya Stark. He just runs into her in the midst of all this chaos and goes, you know what? You're interesting. I'm going to pay a little more attention to you. I always <laughs> liked that. I like that, too. I, I think Jack is such a fascinating character. Just for the, for that fact alone, that he does leave Arya behind. Like you think that if he was more invested in Arya as, as a character, he would be like, "Come with me to wherever I'm going." Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But oh, if you don't want to come, that's fine. Yeah, just do your own thing, bro. That's fine. Totally fine. I, I think it's. I think I, I love Jack and two, and I love the parallels of Melisandre because you you did bring up the the fact that he has the hair going for him. The 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 
the same hair that Melisandre has, the red hair, and also the contrast of the red and the white. But, you know, Jacken also frames his, like, giving back Arya the three deaths and the, th- the Red God must have his due sort of mm-hmm. thing. So you do have that connection. And, and there is discussion as to whether Jacken Hagar is truly an adherent to the Red God or whether he's just kind of playing a part. That's something that we can explore later on in A Clash of Kings itself. But I do think that that connection is – it's definitely intentional on George's part. But that does take us into that other connection that Arya has to another mentor figure, one who is unfortunately going to die in just a few chapters. And that is our good friend – friend? Is he a friend? Our good father? Is, is he a father figure? He's an uncle. He's, he's, he's a, a smelly, mean uncle you have over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's Yorin of the Night's Watch, yes. And all these supporting characters we've talked about, Gendry and Jockin and Hot Pie, they all, they're established here, but they get their close-up later on in Arya's story. The supporting character that gets the most focus in this chunk is Yorin. As with Jon, Arya gets this endless string of mentors trying and only partially succeeding to fill the hole that Ned left behind. She gets Harwin and Beric Dondarrion, Sandor, of course. But Yorin comes first. He's the first, because he was there when Ned died. So in Arya's mind, he is just so intimately tied to the trauma of that moment. And I don't even mean that as a critique of Yorin, really. It's just, I think, psychologically, just the reality of the situation. You know, he's the one who cut her hair, the hair that looked like Ned's, that brown hair she describes as, like, flying off her to the sept as if to join him, as if to find him and save him. And Yorin is just is, is tied up in that. And he... Yorin reminds me of Stannis. Shock. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. Uh, not only in his sour temperament, but in how George carefully constructs him as an ambiguous character. Because on one hand, Yorin is trying to get Arya home. That's what all his efforts with her are about. And unlike the show, he's doing this without even being asked to by Ned. He just takes this upon himself to, to, to get her out. On the other, he admits that this might not necessarily actually have been for her greater good. That She might have been safer in the city. You know, on the one hand, he beats her until she bleeds. And George doesn't want us to, like, you know, hand wave over that. He lingers on it, and it's pretty horrible. On the other hand, Yorin's only doing that to teach her an important lesson about not taking her grief regarding Ned out in the likes of Hot Pie. You see what I mean? It's, it's like Stannis, where he's very difficult to pin down, and I think that's intentional. He's also like Corrin, their names even sound alike, in that they represent uh, the best of the Night's Watch, but you also get the sense that both of them have worn those black cloaks a little too long, and they've partially lost touch with humanity writ large. Like, I think... It's an idea you see come up again and again in the series, that giving your life for the greater good isn't the same thing as being likable or nice. Yorin is admirable in, in, in this detached way when you consider the big picture, but that doesn't mean it's it's pleasant for Arya to interact with him. Like, she just thinks of him as the guy who comes at her with a knife in that alleyway and then takes her into the woods and beats her with a stick. And it's 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 hard to for her to reach the emotional conclusion that this guy is looking out for her when he's so kind of violent in person. You know what I mean? Certainly. I think he's... Very ambiguous, and I think the, that ambiguity leads to, to a really good character. I think Yorn is interesting too because his ambiguity in relation to Arya is also kind of set in contrast to the Night's Watch. Like he talks repeatedly about how he's neutral in any conflict between the Lannisters and the Tullys or the Lannisters and the Starks, but yet, and yet, He's the guy who's taking Arya Stark home. He is kind of taking a side in all of this, right? I mean, he could have left Arya behind, but yet he doesn't. And the fact that he doesn't adds another layer of ambiguity that I don't that I, that I think really needs to be explored, especially in, in contrast in comparison to Jon Snow's kind of lack of ambiguity in A Dance with Dragons. And I think it's really important that we have that character archetype, which is, yes, influencing Arya directly in A Clash of Kings, but also having larger consequences and larger impacts to a character like Jon Snow, who I think they only interacted like once in, in A Game of Thrones before he headed off down south to on his recruitment tour. 
That's true, although John seems to have an impact on Yoram because when he's telling Arya how bad the new recruits are, the, the way he phrases that to her is, don't think they're all like your bastard brother, implicitly setting John up as the noble standard that Arya would assume everyone was like. And yeah, that, that's a great point about Yoram kind of kind of b- betrays what he sets up as his ideals by focusing so much on Arya. And of course, why is he invested in House Stark at all? As he said to Ned back in book one, it's because Benjen is in his family, is in the family of the Night's Watch, and Yoram kind of feels like that extends outward to House Stark, which is an interesting concept. But yeah, in terms of Yoram's proffered ideology, what he says he believes, that this is part of what makes him important as a, as a character, is his perspective on the Night's Watch and its relationship to the realm. Underneath all the growls and mutters and spitting sourly at everybody... Yorin is a true believer. He's thoroughly, earnestly devoted to the idea that the Night's Watch is a noble calling that unites the realm, even or especially in contentious periods like these. He believes in it so much that he walks straight into the mouth of a civil war, insisting that his cloak shields not only him but those in his care, because that's how it's supposed to work, right? And again, the ambiguity. Like, there is something genuinely inspiring about that 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 takes real courage. But as he admits, it's also an act of willful blindness that does end up getting almost everyone killed. And I think George is using Yorn's worldview as a way to reflect how Westeros has fallen from the ideal of the Night's Watch, everyone working together for the common good. By showing how disappointed and wrong Yorn is about the situation in the Riverlands, George shows that that ideal no longer exists. I mean, of course, as we've said before, and we'll say again, the Watch as it actually exists does not reflect this ideal. And it, it, it can't really within the political context of, West, of Westeros. You have that anecdote in Arya's second chapter here, uh, from the innkeep, I had a brother took the black, years ago. Serving boy. Clever. But one day he got seen filching pepper from my lord's table. He liked the taste of it is all. Just a pinch of pepper, but Sir Malcolm was a hard man. You get pepper on the wall? When Yorn shook his head, the man sighed. Shame. Link loved that pepper. Like, that's really kind of a devastating story. This guy got his life destroyed, his family, his home, his friends taken away from him for a pinch of pepper. Like, the class structure is that rigid there. That's like Dickensian-level cruelty. But, you know, George is still constantly framing the ideal of the Night's Watch and the ideal of Westeros United for one purpose as something to be reached for. And similarly, Yorin insists that his colors run deeper than the divides of the Civil War. Tully or Lannister makes no matter. The Watch takes no part. And it's interesting, the, the, the little encountered by Team Bran in the Storm of Swords argues that the, the escalated danger on the road we're seeing here is symptomatic of a failure of leadership. When there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the King's Road in her name-day gown and still go unmolested. And travelers could find fire, bread, and salt at many an inn and hold fast. But the nights are colder now, and doors are closed. And Yorin is making the same argument, filtered, of course, through his own personal bitterness. Time was, a man in black was feasted from Dorne to Winterfell, and even high lords called it an honor to shelter him under their roofs, he said bitterly. Now cravens like you want hard coin for a bite of wormy apple. Or later on, when they're menaced by an archer up in a tree, him in his tree. Let's see how well he likes it up there when the others come to take him. <laughs> He'll scream for the watch, then that he will. On the one hand, like Stannis, this is kind of petty and over the top in terms of he's like, yeah, hope the others come get you, then you'll be sorry. But on the other hand, he's, it's, it's this reflecting this anger and sadness on Yorn's part that when he's gradually realizing that his peaceful ideal of Westeros no longer exists. Like when they get that corn that they have to pay for and they're, they're roasting it and Arya says that she thought it tasted wonderful, but Yorin was too angry to eat. A cloud seemed to hang over him, ragged and black as his cloak. Ragged and black as his cloak because what he's worried about here is, wow, maybe I've been wrong about what this cloak means to, to, to all of Westeros. Maybe it doesn't mean as much to the people as I thought it did. I've, I've been doing this for so long, been bringing men to the wall for close on 30 years. I'm Yorin of the Night's Watch. I'm a legend. I do this better than anybody. <laughs> all that time, I only lost three. 
but am I am I about to lose everyone? Yeah, it's 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 really tragic, and uh, you know, I also think it's uh, like your befuddlement and exasperation also speaks to something that Eamon was talking with John about about how you know Black Heron's brother was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch when he had ten thousand men when Aegon came to conquer, and did he march south to confront Aegon? No, he stayed at the Wall. So Yorn is kind of looking at this the situation in Westeros and being like. Wait a minute! Like we're the guys who are like actually like up there like defending everyone, regardless if you're a Lannister or Tully or Stark. But now you guys are looking at us with suspicion, and you're not like treating us with the same tender care that we've treated the rest of the world with. Like, come on, come on! This is this is manifestly unfair. Not just manifestly unfair in terms of the Watch's relationship to the realm, but manifestly unfair in terms of the individual relationship that Yorn is having to Westeros, given the vast history that he's had in going back and forth. I mean, Dorne to Winterfell is a long freaking way between the two places, thousands and thousands of miles. He's only lost three men, and now he's got 30 men under his, his care and concern, and he's walking into a war zone hoping that the Night's Watch cloak will give him that neutrality that will you know, give him almost like a peace banner, so to speak, as he progresses through the war zone. And how many of those guys are going to die? Is it like 25 of them end up dying in Arya 4 and 5? Almost all of them, yeah, absolutely. When we get to that village by the god's eye, Yorin's, Yorin's prized record goes out the window, and he, he feels it coming. There's that sense throughout these chapters of the walls closing in, the roads are getting smaller and smaller. Again, it's like they're being hunted, like they're walking into a trap. And it's not literally true, but it, it, it feels true that they're just they're waiting to get hit. And then Yorin admits that, you know, a ship now, might have been wiser. And he says, no chance of finding more men on the way. Yorin's like too good at his job. He was too committed to the task and that that's getting him all in trouble. 30 years I've been taking this King's Road. It's almost like Yorin has this quasi-religious faith in the road itself. Louis Septon Marable does talk about like, you know, the road made me strong and the road will always take me home. The path of faith he talks about at the Quiet Isle. That's kind of how Yorin is talking about this. He has this this ideology and he really wants it to, to still be true. But you're left with the reality that it's not, and you kind of know it at this point, so aren't you just getting everyone killed? And that's that's the great ambiguity of Yorin. Is 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 he an asshole or is he admirable? Is he a hero trying to protect these innocent people from all these sides ravaging the realm? Or is does that bloody, frothy, red smile bubbling on his lips from the sour leaf, does that represent his culpability and the bloodletting coming next? Ultimately, if I have to pick a side, I, I think of Yorin as this uh, tragic figure of a bygone era. I think the failure... Yorin has his own failures, but I think the larger failure is that Westeros just at this point doesn't have room for a guy with an admirable vision start trying stubbornly to do the right thing. And I, I think that's a shame. It really, really is a shame. I'm, I'm also pro-Yorin. I, I think I like his character a lot. I like the fact that he's really trying to do the right thing despite so many people doing the wrong thing in the story here. I, I also think it's – it's interesting too that you know you talked about the color contrast we have going on in the colors that are in Arya's story and how it's very much muted. Besides, you know, Jacken's hair and Yorin's sour leaf, that red sour leaf there. So those two colors, red and white, are are, are big factors in Arya's storyline. So I do think that George is subtly showing us that Yorin is leading these men to a bloody end by using the sour leaf. I think that's a good visual cue for us as readers. I think it's really, really good. But I think where Yorin gets the most, gets my most sympathies is in this, is in Arya's second chapter here, where Yorin ends up coming face to face with six dudes who believe that a sword is what the law actually is when they're fucking wrong. And I can't wait for you to break it down. 
Yeah, the showdown with the gold cloaks. So this happens in the middle of this chunk of Arya's story in the second of the three chapters under discussion. But I wanted to close this section of the episode with it because it brings all the threads we've been talking about together so perfectly. You get this this fragile oasis of the inn with its bathhouse. Everything is functioning properly. Everyone's getting along. It's standing in for refuge and comfort and just everything that the war is taking away. Like by the time Jamie gets to the inn of the kneeling man in A Storm of Swords... Things have changed quite a bit in terms of hospitality on the road. And indeed, the, the arrival of the Gold Cloaks stands in for all the violent, arrogant, authority figures swaggering around the Riverlands disrupting these refuges. Every inn has this story now at the war of the time the soldiers came in and messed everything up. And it usually goes much worse than this. And not only do the Gold Cloaks just act and talk like they're better than everyone, not only have they come to kill an innocent child this collateral damage from the nobles' infighting, but they specifically reject, as you said, Yorin's ideal of a realm built on and united by law. Instead, the gold cloak drew a short sword. Here's your law. Like, that's the purest expression, right, of the breakdown of order in the Riverlands. And how it's actually not being driven primarily by criminals or outlaws, many of whom are going around saving people. It's being driven by uniformed men who are acting on, on the word of the officials and the word of the people in charge. They're the ones who are messing everything up. And so these bleak circumstances feel to me like a microcosm for the whole of Westeros at war. Again, this is what's going on everywhere. And it's so great that before things get much worse in Arya's chapters and in the war, George gives us this image of defiance. And it's so perfect and cinematic. First, Yorn spins the officer's might-make-right attitude around on him. That's no law, just a sword. Happens I got one too. <laughs> so, so here you see the balance of power shifting as the underfoot realize, oh yeah, we have swords too. If the law is a sham then they're no better than us. We don't owe them deference or respect just because they're law enforcement, not if the regime they're supporting is, is corrupt and hopeless and murderous. So then the officer falls back on numbers. I have five men. But Yorin cries, are there no true knights among you? I mean, he <laughs> points out that he has 30 men to their five. Of course, just as with Catalan's call to arms at another inn in the previous book, that assertion means nothing if the 30 didn't actually back Yorin up. And in so many other scenes in the Song of Ice and Fire, so many more kind of grim and pessimistic scenes, they probably wouldn't. They wouldn't back Yorin up and he would fail miserably. But in this scene, they do. It's, it's magical. One by one, the small folk of Westeros pick up the most humble weapons available and stand together, some of them literally naked, to defend one of their own from the elites who treat them like pawns and playthings. It's, it's, it's goddamn inspiring stuff, especially in this bleak context. You know, it doesn't change their circumstances. It doesn't It doesn't end the war nor topple the social structures, but it, it resonates as this insistence that they're not going to go quietly into the night, that they're not going to vanish without a fight, that they're the last of the giants. It's, <laughs> again, it's, it's, it's a stand-on-your-feet-and-cheer moment, and George doesn't provide many of those, but I think that's in part because when he does, he wants you to notice and, and you know, be proud. Even more so because Yorin, man, Yorin in this scene, he proves himself to be a badass out of the songs like Sirio after all. It was a mistake to take his eyes off Yorin, even for an instant. Quick as that, the Black Brother's sword was pressed to the apple of the officer's throat. Neither's the one you get, unless you want me to see if your apple's ripe yet. Got me ten, fifteen more brothers in that inn if you still need convincing. I was you, and let loose of that gut cutter, spread my cheeks over that fat little horse, gallop on back to the city. He spat and poked harder with the point of his sword. Now. The officer's fingers uncurled, his sword fell in the dust. We'll just keep that, Yorin said. Good steel's always needed on the wall. As you say, for now. Men, the gold cloak sheathed and mounted up. You'd best scamper up to that wall of yours in a hurry, old man. Next time I catch you, believe I'll have your head to go with the bastard boys. Better men than you have tried. Yorin slapped the rump of the officer's horse with the flat of his sword and sent him reeling off down the king's road. His men followed. 
Like, that's just perfect. Like, Yorn mm-hmm. is just like this, like, old gunslinger in a western, or like, just this badass samurai walking in and just taking charge. Every word out of his mouth is an awesome catchphrase. He not only beats the dude, he hum- humiliates him with his, his quick sword maneuvers. Like, finally, Westeros is working like the songs say it should. But, Yorin isn't looking for applause from the audience because he knows what's coming next. As soon as everyone starts cheering him, he goes, Fool, you think he's done with us? Next time he won't prance up and hand me no damn ribbon. Even Cersei's corrupt cronies are still observing some of the niceties at this moment. As the war continues, though, that won't last. Life is not a song, and Yorin knows it. And he's right, even though these particular thugs aren't the ones who kill him, it's, it's Amria Lorch's men, but they might as well have been, because they're doing the same dirty work as Amria Lorch. They're working for the same people. Ultimately, it's the same machine that brings Yorin down. And it's, it infuses the kind of this note of, of melancholy into the scene that Yorin immediately cuts off any triumph and reminds you, no, our circumstances have not changed. We are still on the road. Things are actually more dangerous now than ever. And it's the same with uh, that Arya kind of assuming the gold cloaks are after her, which is like a, a fun little reversal when you learn that it's Gendry. <laughs> but it's also really kind of sad that she's always going to assume this, you know, because unlike Gendry... She knows she's a lord's child on the run from Cersei. That's her own class consciousness. And that's going to strain her bond with Gendry later when he, as I said, he develops this ideology which starts seeing the Starks and Tullys as part of the problem. So even as we see everyone come together here for, it's for one shining moment, it's only one shining moment. I think George does a really good job with these kind of apotheoses where he presents them as these great moments where everyone comes together, but then you have to keep leading your life. Like, you know, there's no happy ending. You have to keep doing things. And eventually you're going to backslide and not be perfect. Eventually you're just back to humans divided against themselves. And I think George captures that in a really bittersweet way here with this, uh, with the set piece with the gold cloaks. Absolutely. It's wonderfully put. I think it's, it's so good listening to you talk about this stuff because this is, this is definitely something that I was not going to focus on talking about. You are and I was going to focus on more like the lawlessness and the laws and stuff like that. But I think like getting that talk about the apotheosis and how, Really, like these emotional moments aren't worth just like kind of having this like fuck yeah and like moving on sort of thing, having an emotional appeal. Like, but they're worthy of analysis. I think like speaks to that was speaks to your credit as as a, as my as my co-host and friend. Ah, oh, Jeff, you're gonna make me blush, but I'm not gonna last in this moment of apotheosis of feeling <laughs> good about myself. I'll backslide and convince myself that everyone who ever insulted me was right. See how it works. <laughs> I, I do see how it works. So, Psychology but, is fun. So talking about like the lawlessness, though, I, I think like you know it's fascinating that in when we're talking about Yorn talking about the the sword being what is going, what is actually makes the law. I think that's really it's a continuation on from what we saw in the prologue where. You know, Stannis is starting to see in the prologue that laws don't really matter, that we can kind of do whatever the fuck we want because, you know, no one really cares about the law. They really just care about getting ahead in the game. So these gold cloaks are kind of doing the same thing where they're utilizing the sword as that method of doing that. You know, it, it really reminds me when the gold cloak was speaking about what Renly says to Stannis at the parlay out at, at Storm's End, where he says, all this talk of snakes and incest is droll, but it changes nothing. You may well have the better claim, Stannis, but I still have the larger army. And that's essentially what is being communicated at the micro level here is that Renly's saying at the macro level at Storm's End that, you know, might makes right that I can, I've got 100,000 dudes or 120,000 soldiers. That is what's going to earn me with the crown. The gold cloaks are here saying what actually makes the law is the fact that I bear a sword. And what Yorn is saying is, no, that's actually not what the law is and what Stannis is saying that as well, like that there's actual laws in, of succession in place. Yorn is saying there are actual laws in place to prevent people who are being going up to the Night's Watch from taking harm or damage from people who would want to inflict them harm and damage. 
Well, yeah, and there's that, that structure again of, of catharsis and then backsliding. Like you have this rush of Yorn pointing out to the to the gold cloaks, hey, if that's how it works, if there's no law and it's just swords versus swords, like Sandor says, then you have no authority over me. And I mm-hmm. can just fight you on my own terms. And it turns out I'm better with a sword than you are, <laughs> so I can win. And you see, you see, I think, a similar dynamic going on with Renly and Stannis where I love that Renly's last line is, now we see who is stronger, rejecting Catelyn's idea of a great council. And then Stannis kills him. Guess we found out who was stronger because when you reduce everything to that might makes right level, you can't you, you, you kind of lose the right to complain right. When, when when you get stabbed you know from behind or when you or when your your victims fight back. But again, there's the backslide. Yorin immediately you know points out to everyone, hey, we're still in danger. And of course, uh, Stannis taking down Rayleigh doesn't exactly solve his campaign for the throne. <laughs> so I, I think George is a, a good job of. Uh, sh- having you understand why these characters are in that position, but not letting them escape them. Yeah, I think he, he wants to have that balance. Absolutely. So it's it's good having that balance. It's good having that contrast between the emotions, the apotheosis versus the reality that they got to get the fuck up the road quick, fast, and in a hurry. The problem is, is that they're going up the road, they're out of the frying pan and right into the fire, the literal fire. So I think that takes us to our foreshadowing growing portion of, of the podcast. You know, Arya's sword needle, this is not the last time that someone's going to try and take needle away from Arya. Polliver is going to take it from Arya in her fifth chapter, and he will keep it until the end of Storm of Swords when Sandor Clegane, uh, beast of my heart, kills him and Arya takes it off of his corpse. And then later when she gets to Bravos, the faceless men are trying to get her to give up the sword and give up her identity. You know, you really kind of see George working his way to the idea that Needle was Jon Snow's smile and that the sword stands in for all of her wistful memories of Winterfell and family. So are you saying that, you know, Needle is not a symbol of vengeance? Is, is that what's going on here? Is, is the show wrong? I, I would I would never dare contradict the show in any such matter. But yeah, I think George was invested in Needle clearly from the very beginning of Arya's story as soon as Jon gives it to her. And I think you can see him first establishing here what it means, not just her connection to the martial world of swordplay that she's kept outside of as a girl, but also specifically to John and to Winterfell and home. That's that's what she associates it with. So whenever someone takes it away from her or tries to take it away from her, that's what's stake, as if they're ripping Jon Snow away from her, ripping Winterfell away from her. And that's that's clearly an, an idea George seized on pretty early. Absolutely. So Arya and Gendry squaring off against each other outside of the inn with their swords <laughs> reads as foundation for Gendaria. Do you know Gendaria right? It is the lesser known of Bramy, of Jansa, of Janeris. It is basically the idea that Gendry and Arya will get together, which is something that we saw in Game of Thrones Season 8. So swordplay, as we have talked about several times in the past, is often used as a metaphor for sex, as seen in Jamie and Brienne's chapters. Brandon Stark's words to Lady Dustin that she recounts to Theon in Dance of Dragons, etc., etc., etc. And I think here we are starting to see that foundation for the swordplay that Arya and Gendry will likely have come, I would think, the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. You see it even more overtly later on in the book when Gendry is at the forge in Harrenhal doing his work shirtless and Arya just pauses and watches him for like an hour. <laughs> Watches the you know the light play along his muscles and so forth. So I think you can see George setting up a relationship between the two of them from very early on in the story. Absolutely. Finally, in foreshadowing and groundwork, we have that random person who came to Yorn with a bag of gold and a boy, and he of course is very likely Varus, as he tells Tyrion in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion two. There was another bastard, a boy, older. I took steps to see him removed from harm's way. 
So that's, it's an interesting thing that Varus does in the background. And like a lot of things Varus does, it's like you can see the glimmer of a humane action in there, <laughs> but it could just be politics. Maybe he's just trying to spare Gendry's life. Maybe he's also trying to keep a potentially grateful heir to Storm's End in his back pocket for when young Griff comes to town. Either way. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to favor the more cynical interpretation of Varus, but, you know, as, as we've talked about in many, many times in the past now, I feel like. It, it, it's all why not both right why couldn't it be that he wants to have some person that he can be like hey when young griff shows up to westeros could you send that gendry guy down from castle black real quick we want to just use him for a quick example maybe he could even recruit some people for the night's watch before heading you know back up to the wall as quickly as possible you know ensuring that <laughs> he doesn't pose any threat to my to my uh my aegon figure here so yeah it's it's interesting that at Vara's and Tyrion too in the narrative, the narrative published version has already occurred, but um, prior to Arya's third chapter here. But there is, uh, it is interesting that we kind of get pieces of the mystery that we can piece together from different chapters in A Clash of Kings. And it's a very minor mystery. I don't think that a lot of people spend a huge amount of time wondering what Vara's was doing with Gendry, but. Maybe they maybe they should. He definitely has a stake in Edric Storm at some level. He probably has a stake in Gendry too. I mean, he definitely got him to get his start in forging, and in being the forger for Tobomot. And um, we don't ultimately know what Arya what what Varys was planning, but probably something Aegon Young Griff related for sure. It may be similar to what he's planning for Tyric Lannister, which is a discussion we'll have later on in Clash of Kings when we get to the King's Landing riot. So that about wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork. Moving on to the theory slash discussion portion of the episode. This is the part of the story where Arya hears about the wolf pack running around the Riverlands where she encounters wolves out in the woods. So naturally the question to ask, will Arya and Nymeria meet again? Okay, yes, obviously. <laughs> of course that's going to happen. But after they very briefly saw each other in season seven, we've been wondering how is it going to go in the books? Right. And, you know, Arya and Nymeria's relationship, it ends physically with her chasing Nymeria away. And... Maybe – do you think it's Nymeria's wolf pack that Arya sees in Arya's third chapter or is that a different wolf pack? Well, much like the Brotherhood, it's difficult for me to get a sense if there's just one large pack or if like Nymeria has a bunch of satellite packs going on. But uh, the connection is so strong. I'm, 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 I'm going to assume they're at least somewhat connected to Nymeria, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I, I think we have the, the wolf connection there. Obviously, we have the sigil connection. We talked about the start of this episode of, of, of the Stark sigil being the dire wolves. And we have Yoren also saying about our do you aren't you like a wolf anyways? Aren't you aren't you favorable to two wolves based on your on your backstory and your family story and your family's history? Now, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, in 2014, George made an appearance on behalf of the Wild Wolf Sanctuary, in which he hinted at a possible future for Arya and Nymeria, especially hinting at Nymeria's future prominence of the story, where he talks about wolves playing a large part in European folklore, of which America's descended, which Okay, George, partially true. Going back thousands of years at Rome, Romulus and Remus, there's always been the relationship between wolves and men. That relationship is seen time and time again in Martin's series, and it's one that Martin says will continue as the last two books are eventually released. Arya's wolf, Nymeria, in particular, will play an important role. You know, I don't like to give things away, says Martin, a grin spreading across his face. But you don't hang a giant wolf pack on the wall unless you intend to use it. So George there is, of course, referring to che Chekhov's gun where you don't hang a, a, a gun on the wall in the first act if you don't intend to shoot. It's like the act three, right? Is that how the, the story of the Chekhov's gun usually works? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. And yeah, that's definitely a giveaway that George intends to not only bring back Nymeria but bring her back in a memorable fashion. And I get why the show didn't really do that, of course. The, the, the budget with the direwolves has always been an issue and just kind of the tone of Arya coming back to Winterfell with a giant wolf pack might have seemed 
seemed a little off. I get why they were going for a more lone wolf, so to speak, <laughs> look for her that season. But in the books, I get the feeling that the wolf pack is going to have a major role to play. And that's one of several reasons I think it's likely Arya will come back to the Riverlands first, just as she did in the show. She also might have some business to tie up with Lady Stoneheart, who, of course, doesn't exist in the show. She might have a reunion with Sandor or with Gendry in the process. And I think that's when that's when she re- reunites with uh, with Nymeria. But I think in the books, Nymeria will come with her to the north. What do you say about that? So I, this, this is something that I, I love thinking about because in Arya's chapters, and we are going to see this in Arya's fourth chapter, is that Arya starts to have wolf dreams, a lot of wolf dreams where she starts to experience having a, a connection, which... We don't – it's ambiguous at first, but I think as as readers, we can go back and say it's a very much a psychic connection, the same connection that John and Bran have with their wolves, that Arya still is psychically connected to Nymeria. Even in The Dance with Dragons, she's still having these wolf dreams that are into the winds of winter. You know, my favorite all-time chapter opener for A Song of Ice and Fire is from A Dance with Dragons, The Blind Girl, in which it's, quote, her nights were lit by distant stars, the shimmer moonlight on snow, but every dawn she woke to darkness. So what Arya is seeing there in that chapter is winter going on in the Riverlands itself. She still has a psychic connection to Nymeria. She's still warging Nymeria. She's still able to influence the direwolf's decisions just as the direwolf is influencing her decisions. In the Mercy sample chapter from the Winds of Winter, we also get her warging Nymeria and watching them go through the woods, through, through, the, through the soldier pines, which is likely, maybe possibly the Whispering Wood in the Riverlands, and going up there as well. So to, it's a roundabout way of saying, yes, I do think that Arya and Nymeria will get back together. I would love to see them go back north together as well. You know, I've had this kind of like crazy convoluted theory that the wolves will go north and, you know, the, have some inf- impact on the Stannis, Roose Bolton, Ramsey Bolton war that's going to be happening in the north. But I think it's more likely that, it'll, that their reunion will take place in the Riverlands. I agree completely. And I would love to see the, the wolf pack in battle against the others or, or the whites. That might be a feature of Endgame in the books. And then in terms of their relationship going forward, you know, if Arya does indeed sail west of Westeros and follows an Alyssa Farman role at the end of the books like she did at the end of season eight, it's kind of silly to imagine a large wolf pack on that boat with her. <laughs> I imagine, though, of course, a lot of them probably die as a part of the war. And I could see Arya being just with Nymeria at the end. Obviously, she named Nymeria in honor of the, the, the warrior queen who took her people sailing abroad. So it would fit very much if Nymeria was, was with her in that moment and also be a nice parallel to, to John going off with Ghost at the end as he did in season eight. So that, that, that's, that's, that's my bet for how it shakes out. Like the wolf pack and battle against the others, a lot of them die valiantly. And then Arya is left alone with Nymeria. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And, you know, we have Ghost who's taking a prominent role in fighting the whites in terms of author in, uh, in a game of Thrones and going North with John on his great ranging North of the wall. So I, I would love to have Arya having a similar relationship and experience with Nymeria in the winds of winter and, and in uh, a dream of spring, especially. And I think that uh, just about wraps us up for clash of Kings, Arya one, two, and three. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I, I think overall I en- enhanced my enjoyment of these chapters by doing them combined. We hope that was a, was an easy, listen uh, but we're about to get to the Arya's chapter is about to ramp up in terms of their their drama and intensity so we'll be dealing with them one by one going forward and a lot of great content to be found absolutely so it's going to be a lot of fun getting into Arya's action beats come later in the Clash of Kings but I think this was a lot of fun to do this these these kind of travel chapters together and to kind of present them in a way I think that you know makes it a little more interesting than simply and the next morning Arya did this but that night she was hungry but the next day she was walking you know it, it does get a little bit repetitive even if they are good chapters so I think it's good to kind of kind of roll them all together into a, a good thing 
Joining our small counselors and helping bring this episode to you are our high lords and ladies, including Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Quint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorsadelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, portraitist of the realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, creator of arts and maker of drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerybolt, the Shoeless Sage, and Lady Madeline Rivers, Justiciar of the Trident. Thank you so much, High Lords and Ladies, for your support, for hanging out with us in the Slack. You guys uh, make it awesome to keep bringing you this content. You guys rock. You're amazing. Thank you so much. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. If you want to join, become one of our High Lords or Ladies, or look at us, some of our other patron tiers, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash notacastasof. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can follow me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can follow me at Brenda Peefish on Twitter, Brenda Peefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next week as King Joffrey Baratheon, or so he calls himself, <laughs> celebrates the tragic fact that he has survived another year in Sansa 1. We're getting to the Sansa chapters in Clash, back to King's Landing, and uh, the Sansa chapters in Clash are very difficult to read, as with the Arya chapters, because there's a lot, a lot of traumatizing things happening, but also really interesting politics, really interesting character work, and really interesting uh, supporting characters. So thanks everyone for listening, thank you for supporting us if you're one of our patrons, and we will see you guys next week.